And you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Amos. And chapter 1. With the Word of God before us this evening, let's still our hearts and pray. O Lord our God and our Father, we bless you, O God, for your Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. As we turn, O Lord, to this ancient word from this old prophet who's now dead but still speaks, we pray, Father, that you would send your Spirit to cause this sacred text to glow in our hearts and to open our eyes. We might see more of God, more of our own nature, more of the grimy and deceitful ways of our own hearts, and you would lead us by the hand, O Lord, to Jesus, who alone can rescue us from the wrath to come. And we offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. Amos chapter 1, we'll read from verse 1 down to chapter 2, verse 3. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a a fire upon the house of of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to care, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon, and I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall hold or devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Bozra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant woman in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds, with shouting on the day of battle, with the tempest in the day of whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kiriath, and Moab shall die 
amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God endures forever. Well, we're often told that we live in a post-Christian age, that the world has got over God and got past God and beyond God. Scholars call it the post-modern age. Post-modern, of course, assumes that it comes after modernism. And modernism was an idea that really, a term, a description for an age of the 18th and 19th century, particularly maybe even the 17th century before that, where men had a confidence that they could think their way to certainty. If you studied and thought and did science and so forth, you could gain a a certain perspective, a certain knowledge. You could trace the roots back to the 17th century. Um, Mathematician René Descartes and his famous dictum, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Do you remember Descartes? began this process of radical doubt. He wanted to be sure of something. He wanted a a solid point. You can't can't just build castles in the air. Um, You've got to start with something, and that something had better be firm. Otherwise, you're building on a foundation with both feet firmly planted in midair, as one person said. And so, Descartes tried to find this point of certainty, but he did so by turning away from God and by turning into himself and trying to doubt everything, what can I doubt and what can I not doubt? And he, he did everything. Can I be sure the sky is blue? Well, it appears blue to me. How do I know my eyes are telling me the truth and so forth? And he kind of peeled away everything, trying to get back to a point of certainty. And he found that point of certainty by saying, I think, therefore I am. I cannot deny the fact that I am the one doing the doubting. And so he had confidence in his own existence. reminds me of a philosophy student. He said to his professor once, how can I know that I exist? And the professor said, to whom shall I address the answer? Um, And after Descartes' thinking, that's where he came back to, certainty. But hundreds of years of learning and opinions and different opinions and two world wars shattered man's confidence in himself. And we get to postmodernism a little earlier in Britain, a little, little, little later in America, but human beings began to realize that there is no foundation for certainty within ourselves. And so postmodernism is the idea of um, relativism, that nothing is really true. There is no capital T truth, that which is true at all places, in all times, and for all people. Nothing is true. There's no big story to explain all the little stories. It's just your truth and my truth, but no big truth. Relativism. Nothing's really true. And then there's pluralism. Everyone is really, no one is really wrong. That all roads lead to truth somehow up the mountain, as it were. God's at the top. And there are different ways up the mountain Hindu way, Buddhist way, Islamic way, Christian way, all different ways up the mountain, but we're all worshiping the same God. And, and everyone's really right in that quest. And then there's multiculturalism. The idea that nobody is really wrong. All cultures are equally noble. We must celebrate them all, Uh, and so forth and so on, post-modernism. Nothing is really true. No one is really wrong. Everyone is really right. And so, people often look askance on people like you and me who claim to know the truth and to have the truth. They think it's very arrogant. Uh, I was talking once a couple of years ago here in UNCG at, a, at, a, at a, uh, a public lecture that I gave and other men were giving to you about transgenderism and the Christian response to transgenderism. And afterwards, there was a question and answer session, and there was a guy in the crowd who basically put that to me, that I was very arrogant to think I had the truth. And I said, so, you know, he said, you know, we all have different aspects of the truth. And I told him the story that you've all heard, I'm sure, before, but it's the Indian wise man, and he's looking at people feeling the elephant, and the elephant represents ultimate reality, God or whatever else you want to call this, the big idea, right? And um, 
there, there are these blind men feeling the elephant, and there's one feeling the trunk, and he says, oh, ultimate reality is long and flexible. And then there's another blind man feeling the ear, and, and he says, no, no, ultimate reality is like thin and flappy. And then another man's feeling the side of the elephant. No, no, ultimate reality is kind of long and flat. And then there's another poor soul, blind man, at the back of the elephant feeling the tail and thinking, no, ultimate reality is thin and a bit stinky. And of course, the wise man says, they're all right and they're all wrong. They're all just feeling different parts of the ultimate reality. And the guy in the car in the crowd had never heard this before, and he was really excited. He said, that's exactly it. That's exactly my point. And I said, but don't you see what you're assuming? He said, no. So you, the person telling that story, you're actually assuming that everybody else is blind, and you're the only person who can see the whole elephant. That's rather arrogant, don't you think? And uh, we had a fruitful discussion. But that's the problem. How can we see the whole elephant? How can we find ultimate reality? Well, the lesson of Amos chapter 1 is rather different than that, but similar. And it's this, that whether or not you can or cannot see the whole elephant, the whole elephant can, in fact, see you. That ultimate reality, the Lord God Almighty, is coming down here at a particular moment of time in the 8th century B.C. We saw that last week. We talked about that. In the days of Uzziah, the 8th king of Judah, this is after Solomon and Rehoboam and the kingdom divided in the 10th century B.C., you remember, 931, when Israel in the north, the ten tribes, and Judah in the south, the one and a half tribes, and um, Judah and the half tribe of Benjamin and the Levites in the south, and um, these two rival kingdoms, and Israel in the north um, had a completely bastardized religion, the two calves, the golden calves made by Jeroboam the first in Dan in the north, Bethel, Bethel in the south, capitalized in Samaria, and in the south you had Judah and the temple. These two kingdoms were, went on together for some time. The northern kingdom collapsed morally, spiritually, socially much quicker and was carried off into exile probably about 40 years after Amos preaches. Amos is preaching in 760 B.C. And the southern kingdom lasted uh, another 150 years. It was taken off into exile in the 6th century by Nebuchadnezzar, by the Babylonians. And Amos, this man, comes with a word from God to address these two kingdoms, ruled in the south by Uzziah, the king who was by and large a good king, but you remember he burned incense and was struck by leprosy. And then Jeroboam the second, a much later king than Jeroboam the first, uh, who's in the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and both these kings in one sense are presiding over an Indian summer, a prosperous brief interlude, while Assyria in the north and Damascus, or Damascus and the Arameans were caught up with their own internal strife. And in that time of international turmoil, Israel and Judah made good use of it, and good years of harvest, they extended their borders, they built forts and so forth, and thought that as things were going to be, they would continue. And God comes, and He speaks through Amos, um, a country boy, a shepherd from Tekoa. We know very little about Amos. He was a man whose attitude was very much like the last of the Old Testament prophets. Let me decrease, let Christ increase. He, he only comes to tell these people about God. And God gives this man a word, a word that's particularly addressed for the northern ten tribes of Israel. One of the only two prophets who spoke to the northern ten tribes, Hosea and Amos, or Amos and then later Hosea. These only two prophets, all the other prophets in the Bible speak to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom cut off from the temple, cut off from the presence of God, the sacrifices, the worship of God, had also essentially cut themselves off from the Word of God as well. But God does give them two prophets, Amos and then Hosea, and Amos comes with these words. He speaks into this culture of prosperity, a bit like America today, a nation that's cresting the wave, perhaps, of, um, I don't know, 80 years of, of, of great prosperity after the Second World War. Maybe no one will ever have it as good as we've had it again. Who knows? 
Certainly that was the case for Israel. And Amos comes with this word, and it's a word that reveals how different, how different the appearance of things and reality can be. To the appearance, to the people in, Amos, in Israel, everything was wonderful. They had these rich, many of them had rich houses and a house by the sea and a house in the mountains for the summer and the winter, and they had the best of furniture and the boutiques to shop in, and everything was wonderful, and, and the world looked as if it was going to go on. There'd be peace and prosperity forever, and it was just wonderful. And God's Word comes, and it shatters that illusion, as God's Word so often does. God comes, and He comes not as a grandfather, not as a warm shepherd from heaven, though He speaks through a shepherd. He comes with a word from this young lad from the south, where the temple is, where the truth is. And He speaks, and the God who comes, comes in the form of a lion, roaring, it's a, a metaphor that's undeniably threatening. A lion, five to six hundred pounds of muscle, eating 17, 18 pounds of meat a day. It's just like a man eating 90 hamburgers a day. Huge beasts with a voracious appetite and claws um, as thick as your thumb and twice as long. A roar that can be heard five miles away across the savannah. A lion roaring. And his roar thunders out from Zion, from the pastures of the shepherds where Amos was in the lowlands, to the top of Carmel, the top of the, 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 the high mountain in the ancient Near East there in Palestine. It's a word that withers. Like Matir says, from the luscious meadows in the river valley to the height of Carmel, from Amos' own shepherd haunts in the far south to the Carmel range in the north, from the tender blade of grass to the luxuriant vegetation of Carmel, all comes under the blight and the blow of judgment. God speaks. And as God speaks here, we said this last week, you remember, He addresses the pagan nations first, these six nations He selects. And it's amazing because um, you can imagine Israel and Judah listening and going, exactly, amen, preach on, because he's addressing their political adversaries, their enemies, the ones against whom they had old scores to settle. But you remember, if you read on into the next chapter, we didn't get quite that far, he moves from these pagan nations. If you plot out the nations on a map, he's going in a circular, almost spiral session, like a a new mortarman trying to find range, and he's walking the shells in from Syria and then into the Philistine nation and then into uh, Edom and Tyre and the Ammonites and the Moabites right on the border of Judah and then into Judah itself. And then finally, he arrives at the real target, Israel. But this evening, I want to just confine ourselves to God's Word to this pagan world. And notice as God comes to speak to these nations, He comes, if you excuse the expression, with a holy arrogance. He just assumes there's one, God, there's one world and there's one God. And God comes with authority. Thus says Yahweh. It's a personal authoritative word from God. God doesn't justify His right to speak. He doesn't come cap in hand saying to the pagan nations, you know, if you look at the stars, you'll see my glory, and if you listen to the little voice of conscience in your heart, it'll offend you from time, and time, from time to time. You'll also hear my voice there, and you really should listen to me. God doesn't come apologizing for Himself or defending Himself. He comes as only God can come with authority. He doesn't make any mention of these nations' efforts in religion. They all worship their own little godlets, which are really the figments of their imagination. Human beings have an instinct for sex, and that instinct can be used properly or it can be used improperly. But we tend to do something with that instinct, and all, in, all human beings have an instinct to worship something something so big, so good, that we will marshal all of our lives to pursue it in order that we might get it, right? And that something, of course, is God, but 
Human beings don't like that. We don't want God to be God. It's an idea with too many consequences. And so what do we do? You've got one of two things you can do. Either you will, you will look down and make something in creation so big and so good that it will promise you happiness forever, like sex or money or rock and roll. Maybe not rock and roll, but you know what I mean. Or you'll make up a false god for yourself, a god who's more user-friendly. And that's what these gods, that's what these nations had done. They're all different gods that they were trying to worship. And God sidesteps all of that claptrap. He doesn't speak about them, doesn't mention them, doesn't applaud them for their efforts in religion, which are just really an effort from hiding from the true God. He ignores their religious efforts altogether. Not surprising. These idols have eyes, but they can't see, and ears, and they can't hear, and hands, but they can neither hurt nor can they help, and they have mouths, but they cannot speak, nor can their throats make a sound. But the, the God of Jacob is not like these. The maker of all is He, and this great God comes down to speak. There's one God and one Creator, and He addresses the nations as one lost humanity. To Him they must give an account. And God comes with what you might call an outraged sense of moral indignation. And He chastises them for their unconscionable depravity. If you were listening, you heard the refrain or the prefix of all these words, for three transgressions of a certain place, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. That's called an ascending parallelism. Parallelism is the way people in the ancient Near East, not just the Jews, do poetry. We do poetry with rhyme. They do poetry with phrases that echo one another, contrast one another, or build upon one another. And for three transgressions and for four was a common poetic uh, um, way of describing an ascending list of things. So you find the same pattern in pagan Ugaritic poetry of the day, of Amos's day, where one poet said, Two kinds of sacrifices does Baal hate, and three the rider of the clouds despises, right? So he's for two and for three, right? It's a list. You see the same thing in Proverbs. There are six things the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that run rapidly to evil. Now, when he says three transgressions and for four, God is not saying you've sinned three times and four times. He's describing a list like water filling a bath, right? When the iniquity of the Amorites is full, an expansive list of transgressions. He's stirring their imagination. One, one computer says, Damascus has not sinned three or four times, but it's sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. And God has been watching this list accumulate. And so far, He's been saying nothing and doing nothing. But that's not to say God doesn't care. A great problem that people have is they confuse God's patience for indifference. It's a major mistake, a massive miscalculation. People sin, and they sin, and they sin, and they sin, and God does nothing. And they think to themselves, well, God has done nothing, and God will do nothing. Major mistake. One of my friends, a pastor, was saying in his area where he pastored up in, in, in um, New Jersey, there was a, a, a branch of hotels, and they, their, their, their catch line on, their, on the billboards for these hotels was, have your next affair with us. And um, one of his mentors um, called in and complained, and he was laughed at by the CEO of the company, or whoever he spoke to. And the next week, lightning struck one of the Science, consuming it. Now, it's a, it, God doesn't do that kind of thing all the time, but He does do it every so often just to let you know He does see, and yes, He does care. Now, there are six nations here for good reason, and they're, they're broken up into pairs of two. 
And again, I'm indebted to Alec Mateer. Alec Mateer's commentary on, on, uh, on Amos is really good. It's, if you're going to buy one commentary on Amos, buy the Bible Speaks Today, Alec Mateer. And he says this, when we examine this list of broken relationships, these six nations, we find that it's not a haphazard collection of charges, but a carefully structured statement, an indictment. Six nations are brought under review. In the cases of the first two, Damascus and then Gaza, nothing is stated except the fact of gross cruelty in war. The next pair, Tar and Edom, are linked together by the word brother. Brother. They did not remember, Tar did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. And Edom, will he pursued, verse 11, his brother with the sword, and cast off all pity when he did so, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. And then the last two, the Ammonites and the Moabites, they're associated by the, by the contrasting ideas of destroying the future, as represented by unborn children, and desecrating the past, burning the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Let's look at these, these three pairs together then. The first pair, Damascus and the Philistines, are characterized by cruelty. Verse 3, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. Now, that could be metaphorical or it could be actual. Some of the the, the, the stories of brutality in the ancient Near East would make your toes curl, would make even the Russians look kind. And um, they did some terrible things to their enemies that I will not tell you. Some of you have not yet eaten this evening. But um, it's not entirely beyond the bounds of imagination that they did thresh them, that they had sleds of sharp metal, um, like sort of sleds, right? And beneath the sleds, there'd be sharp metal spikes and blades. And they lay their captives maybe down in the ground and had horses draw those sleds across the defeated enemy. It's the mindset, one commentator says, that all is fair in love and war. I mean, you can imagine uh, the generals of Damascus saying, well, there's only one way to make war after all. You hit the enemy with everything you've got in every way that you can. And if anyone say, stop, the Marquess of Queensbury rules going on here, he would say, there's a war going on, don't you know? Exceptional circumstances justify exceptional measures and remove the conventional limitations that you would normally have in decent times. And... Such behavior might be acceptable in Damascus, but if it does not go unnoticed by the God of heaven, God sees and God cares and God will take action. Does God care about what's going on in Ukraine? I'm sure there's atrocities on both sides, but does, does God care about Russian soldiers lining up civilian captives and shooting them in the back of the head and throwing their carcasses into a mass grave? Does God care when Russian soldiers um, gang rape young girls in a town in unspeakable ways? Does God care? Does God see? And Amos says, yes, God does care. And yes, God will eventually take action. It's an awesome picture of God and His judgment. So God says, I will send fire. It's another common metaphor in all of these judgments. Fire coming. Fire was used as a common metaphor in pagan nations and in Israel and Judah as a symbol of consuming, cleansing judgment. Like that last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where the, the ark, um, fire comes out of the ark. And it's both beautiful and brutal. Like the German soldier who goes, it's so beautiful. And his head explodes. Um, not so beautiful then, but it's beautiful and brutal as God does His work cleansing the world of wickedness and wiping it clean of evil. And that fire, of course, isn't something God does. It's what God is. 
That's how people absent a Savior experience God's presence. God's presence comes to those through Christ who come. He comes like a, a river of living water. But to those outside of Christ, the presence of God is experienced as a, a, a raging ocean of brimstone, molten sulfur and rock, lava coming to consume. The psalmist says, fire goes before God's presence and consumes His enemies round about. It's a picture of what Jesus received upon the cross. More of that at the end. And there's no defense against this judgment. Even the, the, the big bars of Damascus, a famously strong gate to the city, there'll be no defense. The, 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 the big bar holding the gate shut will be shattered. And the king will be driven away. No defense from the gates or for the, from the government. What, was, what they did to others will be done to them. And the same for the Philistines. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. That was common in those days. You would deliver up a nation and sell the captives as slaves to other nations for profit. Matthias says, we've moved here from the battlefield to the boardroom, from the camp to the counter. Gaza was a hive of commercial activity, a great trading center. Buying and selling was its lifeblood, but it was maintained at the cost of many a life. But then, as was well known in Gaza, no one was in business for philanthropic reasons. You've got to make a bottom line. You've got to make a profit, right? Where money talked the loudest, it was often best to learn to hold your tongue. And where the margin between solvency and bankruptcy depended every day on making a profit margin over your nearest rival or finding a market for what he had thought unsaleable, why? Then best to turn a blind eye and get on with business. If life is hard, business is even harder, Matir says. And as we can well imagine, nowhere was this philosophy more thoroughly known and practiced than in the emporia of the slave trade. Go to the slave market. See this one here. She goes down on her knees, begging to stay with her husband. He's crippled and sick at the point of death. Hard luck, sweetheart, says the slave driver. I'll fetch too good a price for you to leave you with him. Merciless, pitiless business. And these people carried into exile a whole people, young and old, men, women, married, single, rich and poor. Only one question was asked, will they sell? And, God, and Matthias says, God took notice as He always does when things are valued more than people. That's Gaza. Trading the, the, the people of, of Damascus treat people as things to be abused and tortured and raped and killed, and people of Gaza view people as things to be sold and bartered over. And you see it today as companies um, close down factories and, 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 and abuse workers trying to force prices down, down, down to the lowest common denominator where a fair, a fair day's work doesn't get a fair day's page and all that pay, and all that matters is um, the, the profit. Now, I agree with Churchill. Capitalism is the worst form of economic policy, except when it's compared with all the rest. But capitalism can be run amok. There's the capitalism of one of my elders in my first church who was a godly man and he said, and I asked him to explain his millions, he said, oh, I've made more money paying more people more money than anybody else. I, I, I look after my workers. I, I pay them well, the best salary anyone will get for their job in the area. And I get the best workers. They work hard for me. I look after them, and the business prospers. That's one side of capitalism. The other side is where profit is king, and it crushes people. And Amos says God sees it. And while he might not take action today, that is not to say he won't take action one day. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it will consume her citadels. 
I also cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will even unleash my power upon Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord God. As they did to their enemies, God will do to them, all of them, right down to the last remnant of them. That's the first two, um, cruelty. The second two nations, we'll move quicker here, they deal with the sins against family, the word brother. Tyre, another great trading metropolis of the ancient Near East, um, they deliver up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Evidently, the city of Tyre and the Edomites had made a covenant. A promise had been given. But what's a promise when it comes to business? We can break promises. You know, situations change, and, and we can break the promise. What worked yesterday doesn't work today. The promise fitted us last year, but not this year. So the promise has been made, and the promise has now been broken. Matter of pragmatism, but not a matter of indifference to God. God cares about our words. We are made in God's image, and our promises matter. Promises like marriage promises, they matter. Membership promises in the church matter. They matter. And Edom, he pursues his brother with the sword, verse 11, while he stifled his compassion. It's a picture of two brothers fighting in the bedroom. Big brother, little brother. And the big brother, the little brother's ticked off the big brother, and the big brother lays in. He's got bigger arms, bigger muscles, and he's punching. And the little brother, I, I give up, I give up. And the, the big brother looks at his little brother and thinks, oh, the wee dote. And he thinks, oh, no. And he pushes, he quietens that voice of conscience. He says, oh, no, no mercy for you. And he rains down in the wee lad with big, hard fists. Even though the boy's given up fight, the lesson has to be learned. And the big brother stifles his compassion, hardens his heart, and punches the brother again and again and again, or gives the arm an extra twist just to make sure the lesson is learned. And he walks away thinking, ha, I won the battle. And God says, but I saw what you did. See how practical the prophets are? God cares about family and takes action when these sacred bonds are violated. And then the last pair, Ammon and um, Moab, they're united by the idea of the future and the past. For three transgressions of the sons of Adam and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they ripped open the pregnant woman of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. The idea apparently was to eliminate any descendants who might come back again in the future to reclaim the land, to so kill the, mo the mothers and the children. What the, what the Japanese did in the rape of Nanking. They cut open pregnant woman and bet on the sex of the baby. And as the mother died, they'd pick up the baby from the ground and throw the baby up in the air and try and catch it on the end of their bayonets. Brutality that was old and new. A line of evil that runs through every human heart. A line of evil that runs through our nation's heart. 63 million babies butchered in the womb. And they know better. You hear the abortion doctors talk about it and write about it online. Some of them, sometimes they joke about it with the gallows humor of beam me up, Scotty, as they suck the life out of the womb. And they know it, though. They, they, they know. You'll hear them talk about it. They'll, they'll say, I know it's a human being. It's, it's a life. They know it's not a mass of cells. There's no plausible deniability for these men and women who are slaughtering the image of God in countless numbers, rivaling Stalin and Lenin. Lenin studied the French Revolution and the Commune in Paris after the French Revolution, and he, he came to the conclusion that the one mistake the French made was they didn't kill enough of their enemies. He learned that lesson well. 
in Russia, of course, and this, this, this brutality that we can find life over the dead bodies of others, that a mother will try and save her life by killing the life in her womb. She's building and making a banquet in the grave, as one man said about a different thing, but there's no life to be found there. She's destroying the baby, and she's destroying herself. In the process, and God sees, and God takes notice. And then Edom, or Moab, burning the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Could anything, one commentator says, publicize more clearly the senseless irrationality of a nourished hatred than to see a venerable corpse dragged from its tomb to suffer pointless indignities? Moab had committed a frightful offense, diabolical in its intensity. It had carried its unbrotherly hostility against Edom to the furthest possible extreme. By burning the bones of its king, it indicated a desire for complete destruction of the peace and even the soul of Edom's king for eternity, with obvious implications for its attitude toward Edom as a whole. And Amos chapter 1 tells us, in its quaint, old-fashioned way, that God will not allow evil to go unchallenged forever. That He will speak decisively about it and against it. He has to. He's the judge of all the earth. Like Kyle has a penchant for doing jigsaw puzzles, and he's this like, I don't know, 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle in his… He'll spend years doing it. I'd love to go and just take one piece from the jigsaw puzzle and hide it somewhere, and I can see him. I can just see him in his mind's eye. I was joking about it with him this week. I see him coming back and putting… and get that one piece that's missing in the jigsaw puzzle. It would drive him crazy. He'd buy a whole… he said he'd buy a whole new jigsaw puzzle just to find that one piece and put it in place and have it finished, complete. Something about us as human beings, we have to finish things. And God has to finish the cosmos. He can't allow evil to go unchallenged forever. And God comes to these people, and He doesn't give them a long, He doesn't give them the Ten Commandments, He doesn't explain to them, okay, this is right and this is wrong, and you really shouldn't slaughter unborn children because it's kind of a big, big, big sin. He doesn't do that. God just assumes they know because they do. For Paul says in Romans, do you think, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, he's been speaking about the sins of the Jews and the sins of the pagan nations, do you think that those who practice such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you despise the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God is designed to lead you to repentance? The reason why God hasn't judged America yet is in the hope that America will come to repentance. The reason why God has not judged you yet, if you're not trusting in Jesus, is God is waiting, hoping, as you defy Him with your life, I'll not serve your Son. I'll not waste my life serving the Son of God. I live for myself. I am the captain of my ship. I am the master of my soul. And your whole life is a provocation of God's wrath and a demonstration of God's patience. All day long, he holds out his arms, longing that you would repent. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that you would turn and live. But, Paul says, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And He renders to every man according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, 
they'll receive indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, and every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without law. But as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So, God has two different standards. For those in the church who've heard the law, we'll be judged by the law, all the law we've heard. But those outside the church who've never heard the law, God doesn't judge us by the Ten Commandments written in stone, but by the Word of God, the law written in our hearts. And Paul says, we know that, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who will show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. If you take these people, you go into a a law firm today in New York where people say there's no truth. No truth. And, and the boss walks across to one of his partners and takes his paycheck and goes, okay, there's no truth. Wonderful. This is your paycheck. We'll just, we'll just tear that up, shall we? And, just, and immediately, the outrage, that's mine. See, they know. They know that an honest day's work deserves an honest day's wage. The, the law is written on our consciences. God won't need to use the Bible to condemn the wicked. They just play back their own hearts. I saw this, I saw this cartoon last week, and it, it, it's wrong in so many ways, but it has this person arriving in hell, and he comes up to the desk of, of hell, and the devil's sitting there, and he says, and, and she's kind of asking a question. It doesn't make sense. And the devil says, oh, no, we, we don't do the damnation, hellfire, and brimstone thing anymore. We just let people suffer the judgment of their own standards. It's way more entertaining. Like the teenager, he gets all angry that the garage is a mess. But there's no concern that his room is a mess. Dad, why do you leave the garage such a mess? It's so, that's maybe where he works out, or she does her exercises, or yoga, whatever, in the garage. And it's all a mess. There's the lawnmower and everything there. It's a big mess. And there's indignation. But there's no concern about their bedroom and the closet that mommy says is a mess. And with the same word where they condemn their parents for the mess in the garage, they condemn themselves for the mess in the bedroom. And we're like that everywhere, human beings. Our own standards would be enough to condemn us, and even those own standards don't go far enough. Because God says, thou shalt be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so, Amos comes to us with this message that nothing has escaped the eye of God. He sees the past, the sin of Hazael, over 50 years old. He sees the individual act, every single monstrosity of Gaza's slave trading, as if he had counted the heads of their captives. He sees the broken promise and the hidden enmity of the heart. He sees the emotions and observes when ambition swallows up pity. He sees the memory and what it cherishes and its lurking treasured sins, and the one sin which runs like a devilish thread through the whole six nations is the sin of self-pleasing, the self proudly trampling on others, intent on its own profit, sitting loose to troublesome obligations, indulging its secret motives, careless of all so long as it has its own way, and bitter to the last against all who dare to stand in its way and say no. That's the issue, self-seeking. God sees the way we treat our husbands and our wives. We, we treat our children the way they treat us. The double standards, the self-righteousness, the bitterness, the anger, the wrath, the malice, the evil speaking, the envy, the jealousy. He sees it all and how foreign it looks in heaven, a world of love. And the amazing thing yet about this God is He speaks about this judgment in the Old Testament and the fire which will consume the adversaries is that God will send His own Son to the altar where the fires of hell burn to die in our place and for our sins to rescue us from the judgment we deserve and the judgment He received in all of its fullness. 
It's beautiful. And it's brutal. The judgment of God. It's beautiful. The angels sing, Ascribe greatness to our God the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are just. The God who condemn, will condemn Nancy Pelosi for her double-dealing, self-righteous, and Elizabeth Warren and her, her pomposity about Roe versus Wade. God will judge them. He'll also judge Trump and Reagan and you and me for our sins. And there's no escape, no refuge from the judgment. There's only refuge in the Son who came to receive that judgment for us. And so Amos is saying to you and to me, while there's still time, while the day of mercy persists, he's saying, how thankful you should be for a Savior. Have you come to Him? Are you trusting Him? Are you leaning in Him? embracing Him as your only hope in life and in death. Oh, come to me, Jesus says. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn ye, turn ye, for why will you die? Let's pray together. Oh, God, our Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for His mercy. We thank You for His truth. We thank You for the beautiful brutality of His judgment. It's not brutal in its excessiveness, just right. It's perfectly measured to the nanosecond it lasts forever. It's perfectly measured to its weight. It comes with all of the fury of God, who's determined to oppose evil in all its forms, even my form and your form in here in this world, uh, my brothers here in the church and sisters, our forms. And it's a beautiful thing. And yet, you visit that judgment on Jesus to visit your love upon us. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of your possession? Surely you will give unchanging love to Abraham. Remember that covenant of mercy, O God. You who take such notice when we break our covenant, we ask you, O Lord, remember your covenant with us and with our children. And draw, them all, draw us all to Jesus, O Lord, for the glory of your name, the growth of your kingdom, and the good of your people. We offer these prayers in Christ our Savior. Amen.